0: I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silvercore podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silvercore, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silvercore club, which includes 10 million in North America wide liability insurance to ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. So through the magic of modern technology, I'm able to sit down with Kyle Stetler online, COVID friendly. Kyle is the past president of the Wild Sheep Society of BC. He is currently on the board of directors with the Wild Sheep Foundation and he's acting in the role of communications director for the Wild Sheep Society of BC. And you guessed it today, we're going to be talking about wild sheep. So Kyle. Welcome to the Silvercore podcast.
1: Awesome, Travis. Uh, really appreciate you having me on and, uh, just really grateful to be here. Uh, you know, Silvercore is a brand and organization I've known about for years and you guys are doing fantastic work and, uh, and hats off to you and, and your communications work and your outreach and, uh, and on this podcast and just super grateful to be here with you today. So thank you for that.
0: Oh, thanks so much, Kyle. So when we were emailing and talking back and forth, we were coming up with a few different ideas and you said you know it might be cool to talk about three main things in particular one would be sheep hunting for the beginner uh two would be the allure and draw of backcountry mountain hunting and three would be wild sheep conservation in BC and project involvement in BC and i think those are fantastic things to talk about because i have never sheep hunted in my life and i'm learning about it through others and through reading and online but who better to talk to than somebody who's been through the process and in, throughout this podcast, you can inform us and educate us on the wild sheep conservation in BC, wild sheep society.
1: Yeah. Awesome for sure, Travis. Well, thanks. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I grew up whitetail and mule deer hunting, I grew up in the prairies out in Alberta and, uh, just love being out there. It just, it was a, I grew up on a farm and it was the fabric of of my existence. You know, I just couldn't, you know, I, I, you know, we only had one channel and TV at home when I was a kid, but I, it didn't matter because I was out in the field and I just, you know, all I cared about was being out and being part of the landscape and and chasing animals around and that sort of stuff. And I never knew anything about sheep hunting. Uh, you know, I had buddies of mine that lived in the mountains and the foothills and they always went sheep hunting. I never really understood it. So I moved out to BC here and it actually took me, a long time to go on my first sheep hunt. I think it was back in 2011. So, you know, in terms of wild sheep hunting experience, I'm pretty inexperienced. I go every year and I haven't, haven't been overly successful. I always joke that I'm much better as at conservation than I am at, uh, at hunting. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I, you know, uh, sheep hunting is certainly, um, you know, a kind of a a unique perspective, you know, not a lot of people have done it, but you know, it's, it's certainly something that I, it resonates with me and, and it was kind of what I mentioned that second part of the email there that you mentioned about the mountain hunting experience, right? Uh, right. And that's what gets me up in the morning. You know, I just, uh, I just can't say enough when I'm out there and, uh, you know, I, there's, I, I still enjoy, you know, whether it's black bear hunting on the Island or maybe chasing uh, caribou or elk or but for me, that mountain experience and, and seeing the goats and wild sheep in their natural habitat or grizzly bears for me, that's just, it's so rewarding. So.
0: So did you have a background in, in mountain adventures of, uh, openism, a- anything like this before deciding to get into sheep hunting?
1: No, I, I hadn't, and uh, in fact, uh, I still find the mountains a little bit intimidating. To be completely transparent, sure, I, I grew up in the prairies, right? We we're flatlanders, you know. You looked across the the way, and you could see your neighbors ten miles away. Really, you know, it was almost th- that bad. So, you know, when I uh, I came to the coast and I started, you know, you know, you kind of got to find your feet and figure out where you're, you know, find a hunting partner and that sort of stuff. It was all new for me, and. Eventually a, a, a buddy of mine that I worked with said, hey, like, have you ever thought about going to a sheep hunt? He, he was a bit of a diehard sheep hunter. It's kind of, you get the bug and you you get, it sticks with you, right? right. So, you know, he, he was petitioning me to go and you know, that there's uh, some special equipment that you need, you need, you know, some certain gear and that sort of stuff, which I didn't have. So it took me a couple of years to kind of get that sorted and I went in my first sheep hunt and, uh, and once that happened, it was a game changer for me. It just, uh, and they say with your first sheep hunt, you, Jack O'Connor is a famous quote, I won't do it service, so I'm not going to even try, but basically um, there's no halfway. You either love it or you hate it. Right. And I can say that that's absolutely true. You go out and you experience it and it's either, yeah, this is it and I'm going to do this again and again and again, or you go, nope, I'll never do this again.
0: <laughs> so what do you think that allure is? What is that allure that draws people into the mountains to hike your butt off to go in a place and sit down and glass for days at a chance of maybe getting a sheep, what, what is the allure for you? Let's say.
1: Well, I, I think it's uh multifold, but the two that really stand out for me is, and I'll talk to the lesser one first is, uh, the experience of being in the mountains, so just mm-hmm. the, uh, the grandeur of the mountains, the experience, seeing that first lamb, or ewe, or ram, or nanny, or whatever the case may be, uh, Billy, uh, you you know, or a, a grizzly bear. You experience that, and just the experience of being in the mountains and the environment that you're in. So that, just that environment is second to none, in my opinion. I just, there's no experience like that, in my personal opinion. But I think for me, and I think for a lot of us that go on these backpack or these backcountry experiences, it's, you know, kind of Travis, the most thing, important things in your life, what do you remember? Is the stuff that came really easy? The stuff that was handed to you, you know? Hell no. Oh, hey, so, son, here's your first hundred bucks or here's your first car or here's, it's it's when you saved and you went out and you bought that first vehicle or when you got that first job after you worked hard and you set a goal for yourself and you achieved it, right? And I think that for me personally, and I think lo- talking to a lot of other um, hunters that do these type of backcountry hunts is it challenges to the very core. Uh, there's times where you just say, "Man, I'm done. I am absolutely done, and I can't go any further." And then, and I, ironically, I just had that experience. I went on a goat hunt in November uh, this year, a late season goat hunt. Uh, actually, it was probably October anyway. It was late season, and uh, at one point, I broke down and I I fell to my knees. We're in this blinding snowstorm, kind of disoriented. And it was to be completely transparent, a bit dodgy. Mm. Um, we probably shouldn't have been on that mountaintop, but we ended up there. The the weather rolled in. We knew it was coming, just didn't expect it to be as intense. At one point I dropped to my knees and I was sitting there and I'm just like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm like, and then it's kind of, I, I've had the opportunity of. To have done these backcountry hunts before, and it was like, no, you're not done. And in fact, if you're done, you're dead. So right you know, it's it's that motivation and pushing through, and it never goes away. You know, every single trip you do back there, you you hit a wall and then you push through it. and and I think that's the reward. even if you're unsuccessful, you don't come home with anything. It's just having been there, you've gone through the experience and uh you come home and you're like wow and there's things you go you learn so much about yourself and it happens every single trip i can't think of a trip where i didn't have that and i can't say that with my other trips Um, again every hunting trip i go on is a successful one as far as i'm concerned just being out there and being in that environment is a success but my mountain trips stand out because every one of them there was a point where i was like oh man i'm just done and then you push through it and you have a successful outcome so
0: I love that, you know, I got into a bit of alpinism back in the day and still like to get out into the hills and there's a, uh, a very famous book called uh, the freedom of the hills. It's a thick book and it's basically the Bible for current Alpine standards for uh, navigation, for rope work, for working on glaciers. And, but just the title of the book, the freedom of the hills is always stuck with me because there is a freedom to being out there. And when we look at the physical conditioning that you have to go through in order to get yourself up to, up in the mountains, uh, it's a fair bit, there's a, a fellow by the name of Mark Twite, and he wrote a book called extreme Alpinism, which is a a, a pretty good book if you want to look through it, but now you, you are taking it to a, a different level. Not only are you getting from point A to point B, you're going up and down, but you're very objective oriented in the fact that you're, you're looking for an animal that you can harvest and there is the whole hunting side of it as well. I, I can definitely see the appeal in the mental side that you talk about, you know, as fit as you can be, and I'm looking at you now, you look like a very fit individual. the The mental fitness is something that I think would appeal to a lot of people, particularly in today's society, people don't know what they're made of until they're pushed. And being up in the mountains will definitely push an individual.
1: Yeah, really well said. And it's interesting. Uh, there was a gentleman, uh, Clay Lancaster. He's, uh, owns Lancaster Expeditions, a long history of, uh, guide outfitting in the guide outfitting industry in Canada here. And Clay, I recently spoke to him and, you know, he said, that's the cool thing about hunting is that there's not a lot of sports where you can go and enjoy it and be relatively good with it and not be you know, not be in great shape, but hunting, you can do that. You can, right? you you know, you can be kind of, you know, there has to be a certain level of fitness, but you can go and hunt when you're 70 or you can go and, um, you might not, you know, push yourself that you, like you did when you were younger, or, you know, if you put on weight or stuff like that, but, uh, you know, it's all about that challenging yourself and getting out there and you, you just, the big thing is, you know, strapping on the boots and putting on the pack and heading out. And that's the hard part. And once you get there and then you just push yourself and you say, okay is it safe and, and can I do it? And you push through and off you go. And so I I think that's pretty cool about, you know, you don't have to be a big linebacker. You don't have to be a marathoner. You just have to have the will, right? You look at, you know, a a 70 pound woman, she can go out and be as successful more than, you know, somebody that's a ultra marathoner in, in the best physical condition. That's a pretty cool thing about hunting. I love it is there's really no limitations. The only limitation is the ones you set for yourself, right? So.
0: Well, you talked about something earlier, which is a little bit interesting and you talked about the gear and it took you a while to accumulate the gear you needed to get on your first hunt. I think you said it was a couple years from the inception in your mind of going out in the hunt to actually getting out there and doing it. What kind of gear are we talking about here?
1: Yeah, you know, again, um, you know, it's sort of what you're, what's important to you, right? So. Uh, and what, what limitations you set for yourself. If you're going to do a fly-in trip and you're going to go for two weeks in the backcountry, you need some pretty decent gear within reason. Typically stuff that's lightweight, uh, relatively durable. And for me, the biggest thing is just the safety aspect, right? So, you know, am I safe? So do I have the proper safety gear and that sort of stuff? So that that's a big starter. You know, and then you know, having good quality boots and good quality rain gear. We could go into all that stuff, but there's certainly a level of, if you're going to do a a two week backpack trip in the, in the Alpine, you probably need some reasonably good gear. And you know, that partner of mine that he had, he was quite an experienced hunter at the time. And he said, you know, you need, this is your list. This is what you need. And uh, he was pretty adamant about it. You know, he said, you know, going and buying the cheapest rain gear you can at Walmart, is not going to work because you're going to walk in the Alpine and you're going to walk through, you know, a stand of trees and you're going to rip it in the first day and it's going to end your hunt. So, you know, there was certain, a a certain level of equipment that he basically required for me to have if I was going to go on that trip. So it just took some time to accumulate it. Right. And again, you know, everyone says, Oh, you know, yeah, what backpack do I need or what pair of boots? I don't, subscribe to that I think you know you could probably buy a decent pair of cheap boots that might work for you as long as you've broken them in and they feel good on your feet you don't have to spend 600 bucks on a pair of fancy boots you know if you have the resources yeah sure go for it but uh, having that safety equipment and those things that really matter you know like a good sleeping bag you know decent enough boots rain gear you know on these trips so And then if you don't have it, you just dumb it down. Um, You know, you can do a day sheep hunt if you wanted to. You probably, your chances of success are pretty slim. Mm. Um, Or maybe a three or four day trip and having good rain gear, you know, that's a big part of it. But um, yeah, you know, just having something, you know, safety oriented is the big thing. And then, you know, the more you accumulate and the the better gear you have, obviously it, in some ways it increases your chance of success, but I always laugh at it because I see these old sheep hunting pictures or these mountain Alpine pictures. Guys are in Wranglers and they got plaid shirts on and running shoes and a cowboy hat. They got a a, a rifle that they paid 150 bucks for it probably at, uh, you know, their local uh, department store and they're out there and they're killing game, right? But, Mm -hmm. you know, the counter argument to that is, you know, uh, game is not as abundant or it's more challenging, it's a more challenging environment. So I always try and, you know, put my best foot forward. I like to go out there and I don't want, I want the limitation to not be my gear when I'm out there. So, but you don't need the best gear for sure.
0: Have you ever found that you've gone up the mountain only to come back down and there's pieces of kit that you just never used?
1: Oh, every single trip uh, without question. Is there Um,
0: anything that you tend to pack up that in the back of your head, you're thinking next time I'm not going to bring this thing back up. Is there something that from your experience, you might be able to share with the listeners that uh, you found just wasn't as necessary as you thought it
1: was? You know, the one thing I, I always take too much ammunition, I, you know, every single time, you know, but you know, you're always planning for that worst case scenario, right? You know, like, well, Mm. what if I go out there, you know, I I find an animal and maybe I take a couple shots and for whatever reason I'm not successful or I drop my rifle and I have to take a couple of practice rounds to make sure it's on and then, or, you know, what if there's a predator or what if, what if, what if, and so that's, I find that's the challenge on a two week backpack trip is that, you know, you kind of are planning for all these contingencies and none of them are like, none of them maybe happen, right? Like not one single one of them, but you know, every trip I always find, you know, one thing I'm notorious for is I always seem to have two or three knives with me or, you know, and I'm like, I don't need to do that, but I, you know, <laughs> you like to have a something for caping, something for deboning, you know, that sort of stuff. So that's one thing I've always just trying okay, we just, I could just need to take one knife on this trip.
0: In preparation for this, I was looking at I was looking at the prices for guided hunts right? And, yeah, and it's not cheap, is it? It, no. it, it's a, it's a pretty penny. And So I can imagine that if somebody wants to get into sheep hunting and go out with a guide, and if you're flying in, it just, it, the costs go up and up and up. Yes. It, it's one of these things that you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. It, it seems like if you're going to be doing it, you might as well go, go all in. Is, is that sort of a, uh, do you find that as a, a large barrier for most people to even get into sheep hunting?
1: Uh, well, it's, I think that question is twofold, Travis, like, first of all, um, you know, to be clear, uh, like a stone sheep, sheep hunt is, can be north of 50 US, 50,000 mm. US dollars. Um, for a guy like me and you're a working average individual, that's not going to happen. Right. Um, you know, you, you have to have some pretty mean capital. The cool thing is, is we live in BC. So you wander down, um, or you go online now and, and purchase your ticket or your tag, and, uh, you can buy general over the counter, uh, sheep tag for 60 or 80. I can't remember the number right now. Right. Um, it's effectively, it's cheap, right? So, and now you're a sheep hunter, you're a sheep hunter, just as much as that guy that dropped or gal that dropped 50 us. Um, so, uh, you know, BC we're so privileged and, and I hope that your listeners and, most people don't take this for granted. We are so opportunistic in BC that we can hunt all of these species, this mountain game. I don't know any other jurisdiction in uh, North America, for sure, maybe Africa, you could argue differently, but in North America where you have an opportunity like this and to do it on a cost-effective budget and, and be a sheep hunter. And I just feel so privileged when I buy my sheep tag and I'm out there in the mountains and I am I get this opportunity because there's so many people that are paying 50,000 us dollars for that opportunity. I, I just wow. pinch myself every time, you know, so. Yeah,
0: we're definitely lucky, very lucky in that regard. So in British Columbia, we've got three main types of sheep that we can harvest. We've got our stone sheep and our doll sheep, which are the thin horn sheep variety. And then we've got our bighorn sheep. And from my understanding, if you're getting into sheep hunting, most people would be looking at a, a, a doll sheep hunt. Is, is that correct?
1: Uh, so, sort of, um, actually, doll sheep is one of the most challenging ones in British Columbia, believe it or not. So you're correct in that we have three species. We have dolls, stones, and uh, we have bighorns. And then the bighorn is further broken down into uh, subspecies. we got the Rocky Mountain bighorn variety, and we also have a California bighorn variety. That's right. That's right. So, um, you know, a lot of people will identify BC with four species of sheep, but really Rockies and Kellys are are considered bighorn and they're not, they're not considered a different species. Now, um, so the most uh, easily uh, to hunt uh, sheep are, are the stone sheep. Um, okay. with doll sheep, there's not an abundant amount of doll sheep in British Columbia. Um, there's roughly 500 in like officially as a BC population. And what happens is up in that Northwest corner of British Columbia, there's a tiny little area where the doll sheep will actually go back and forth between the Yukon and British Columbia. And, uh, some of them live, you know, winter range, summer range, they go across. Um, and there's only the two, um, uh, regions, 628 and 629 where they're on LEH only, and you can, you have to apply and get drawn for them. So it's very, very difficult. I think they only give out 28 authorizations or roughly 30 authorizations in each uh, area, 28 and 29. So you got 60 chances to get a tag in British Columbia for doll sheep. Okay. Uh, stone sheep typically are over the counter. You can go and buy a general open tag for stone sheep, although there are LEH regions for stone sheep in British Columbia, so you have to be drawn for those. And then for the bighorn variety, there are general open seasons, but your success are very low. I've never actually hunted for bighorns in BC. Uh, your best bet is on an LEH, and there's certainly areas where uh, your odds are better than others, but I've put in for a sheep draw every single year and, and of course, not been drawn yet. So it's uh, if you for kind of uh, a lot of people, stone sheep is the most uh, appealing because uh, there's a lot of different regions that you can hunt them. And, uh, it's a general open tag you just buy over the counter and it's a bit more accessible, I, I would say.
0: So. so how much time do you typically put aside for, for a sheep hunt? Let's say you're going out for a stone sheep and you want to be successful. I know you mentioned you can, you can day hunt, put a couple days in if you want, but your odds are going to be low. Wh- what should you be looking at allotting?
1: Yeah. You know, th- and that's a tough one, you know, for, for the average person that has two weeks holidays, um, you know, time is of the essence, right? So the, the challenge, I, I, personally set aside two weeks for my sheep hunt and that's excessive for sure. Um, but the challenge here is, is that if you're going to hunt as an example, stone sheep, uh, like I mentioned, it's a day to get there minimum. Uh, you know, if, if I leave, I'm on in Victoria, if I leave the Island from the day I leave my, the time I leave my house to where I'm putting on my boots to go in the Alpine, uh, or to get on the trail to go to the Alpine, I'm 20 plus hours. So, you know, you're driving north of. Uh, there's no Stone Sheep in British Columbia south of Williston Lake. So that gives you an idea of mm. how far north. Once you get to Prince George, you know, another eight hours, and you're going to start to being into Stone Sheep country. So, right, um, that's the challenge. So you're a day and a half, probably two days, getting there, and then realistically, if you're going to do a hike in, you're probably a day to where you're going to get the sheep because they're not going to be standing on the side of the road so now you're two days and you haven't even had a chance to pull the trigger yet uh, and then of course go in reverse you're two days out so if you just give yourself a week you really have three days of hunting now you can cut a little time off do a fly-in trip and that's going to give you a little extra time but of course you land get at a lake you got your six hours Plus, you're probably hunting. They're not going to be hanging out at the lake, uh, you know, watering likely. So you're probably going to have to hike from there. So, you know, uh, 10 days is a great number. Guide outfitters, I think quite often they'll do 10-day trips. So that's what they offer their clients. That's a great number. I think that, you know, realistically, you could have a high level of success on a 10-day trip. You could do it in seven if you're lucky. And for me, I just allocate two weeks every year when I have the ability to do so. And and I've found that that's my, you know, the sweet spot. But I, I know guys that go out for a month or whatever that maybe are retired or they, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if they're independently wealthy, but certainly I don't have <laughs> the resources to do that. I'm already in the bad books with two weeks with the family. right? Now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a time commitment. It's a money commitment for sure. Absolutely. Now, so when you're doing these two week hunts, are, are you doing this on foot? You're hiking in, or are you doing many fly-ins? Are you uh, using pack animals?
1: So uh, I've never had the experience of doing a pack animal, and uh, that's—I'm sure that would be a fantastic experience. I've just never had the resources to do it. I guess really, I've done a mix of uh, hike into the backcountry off the highway. You know, you find a spot and you hike in off the highway, and I've done a number of fly-ins over the years, and both are are so rewarding. One thing I like to do is I don't—I don't go. To the same place all the time i like to diversify for me it's again it's about the experience right i don't want a canned hunting experience for me it's different experiences different places new challenges i have gone back to the same place occasionally but i don't uh you know it's not like well you know i was lucky to get a ram on this hill here and i'm just going to go back there every year knowing that my success rate and as such uh, you know i've only had the opportunity to to kill two rams in the last, uh, 10 years, but I, I have been, my hunting partner's been successful. I think between the two of us, we've got five rams over that 10 year period. So in terms of sheep hunting, that's a reasonably successful number in terms of a do it yourself, you know, for guide outfitter, I'm sure they, well, no, I know they have a much higher success rate. So for me, it's, it's a bit of a mix, um, hike in or a fly in, and there's tons of opportunity: jet boat, horseback, and they're all services you can, Uh, incorporate here in BC, there's tons of, uh, uh, you know, uh, services provided for that. So
0: So with this hunt that you're on, that you felt like giving up, like you felt overwhelmed on, can you tell me a little bit about that hunt? Like, can you paint the picture of like what what brought you to that point of just feeling that mentally exhausted?
1: Uh, Sure. But I know you're listeners are going to judge me, but that's fine. I, I'm pretty <laughs> humble. I, I've, I've had to eat crow a lot of times, but, uh, it, you know, so it, this was one of these trips, Travis, where uh, I got a goat draw and, you know, when I put in for a draw, I always try and I find that, the, again, you're given this great opportunity and I don't want to waste it. And I don't judge people when they, they get a draw and then they don't go. I, I, unfortunately, I, I'm not too keen on people that just, throw out there with no intention of going anyway and never you know I'm not judging but personally I, I don't want to miss that opportunity somebody lost that opportunity so I could go so I got this goat draw and I had this tiny little window and I you know I was trying to balance life and work and all these other things so I got a goat draw in the um, in the interior and um, in region three and, uh, I only had that short window and I, I called my buddy up and I said, are we crazy? Like, and he didn't have a draw, he was just coming to support me, which, you know, that's amazing, right? Good yeah, on him. That. Yeah. What a great guy, right? No um, kidding. And, you know, that's fantastic. So, um, I said, am I crazy? Like we got five days to make this happen. Is that like, and we got a day there and a day back, so we got three days of hunting and we also know we got to get on the animal. And I said, are we crazy? And he goes, "Yeah." he goes, we can do it. And he goes you know, how many goats are you going to kill sitting in your house in Victoria? I'm like, oh yeah, okay, we're going. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, it was uh, well po- well pointed out. Yes. So anyway, we did the drive up, we got um, into our spot, hiked in, and it was a day hike in. We were kind of watching the weather and it, there was a kind of a Pacific system moving through and we knew there was some weather coming. And we looked at the local town and we, we seen the forecast there and they were calling for snow and wind, but it didn't look outrageous. Um, we knew it was going to be uncomfortable. So get up first thing in the morning, packs on, uh, hike in about six hours. And we're kind of now in, you know, in, we're in the zone. We, there's goats. We know that there's goats around. We hadn't seen any yet. And then we have a grizzly bear run in. So there was a, a sow with, um, I think there's just the one cub that was that one. And, uh, we see her and, um, we push her where there, there actually is a, a trail there. So we're on this trail and it's actually a hiking trail and hunters use it and it's well used by like the h- hiking community as well, which is a great resource for hunting, by the way, for any of your listeners, like don't, don't look just on the hunting forums, look on the backpacking forums, especially in Southern BC. There's so many opportunities where people have pictures of uh, wild game uh, that you're interested in harvesting and they're, they talk ah, about it on their forums, right? So good that's. Good point. Um, never, when you're data mining, don't limit yourself to the hunting community. Cause there's a lot of non hunters out there that are, have great resources as well. So anyway, we're on this trail, bump this sow and she did, she's not very happy. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we have our rifles out. I, I typically, when I'm packing, I like to use poles. Um, especially if I've got a bit of a heavy pack. So my rifle was in my pack, but right away we're down, we get our rifles out. So she, she goes away, but she's not happy. So we keep hiking and then sure enough, we run into her again and now she's really unhappy. So, mm. um, it, to the point where we're worried that like, you can see she, uh, we bumped her at 80 yards. She was in and out of the trees. We didn't realize she was there and hair standing up on her end on, 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 end. And we're like, Oh, okay. So we're like, let's get off the trail. So we start heading up over and we're, we're not too far from where we need to go. And we got to peak up over this valley and down the backside. So anyway, now I'm carrying my rifle. I got my poles put away and cause we're worried about this, this grizzly. Sure. So uh, an hour passes and we get to this peak. Now this system's moving in and the wind just keeps escalating and it keeps getting stronger and literally raining sideways, um, just completely. And as you know, when you're out in the bush and if you're moving, even if you're wet or you're, you know, whatever, you're fine. It's, it's when you stop, that's when the hypothermia really becomes a risk, right? So. Right. We, we keep moving, we get up to the peak, and at this point, the wind is absolutely just, uh, it's a tornado-like, a hurricane-like, it's so strong. There's times where I have to stop and plant my feet, because you're, and we're going over the pass, I think it's about 7,700 feet was the elevation, and we're gonna go down into this valley, and that's where we we're gonna be hunting from in there, it was that valley, obviously, uh, the goats were up high. So we come over the top, and this wind gust comes, so I have to stop, and I've I've got my rifle in my hands, and I've got my feet firmly planted. And this is the first time that's ever happened to me. And in a second, all I know is I'm flat on my face, my my expensive mountain hunting rifle jammed in the ground, and I don't know what happened. And I'm like, so... You know, the wind sometimes will blow you when you're out hunting and you lose your step and you maybe fall over or you get blown over. Sure. This literally picked me up and dropped me down. Like it Whoa. lifted me off my feet. I've never experienced anything like it. Uh, and I look over at my my hunting buddy and he's laying on his face in the ground. Same deal. That, this, wow. And we're trying to guess how strong this gust had to be. But, you know, I'm a 200 pound plus guy. i got an 80 pound or 70 pound pack, my rifle, and it just picked me up and planted me down on the ground so you know that was the first like oh this isn't very good so we're like let's get the heck off here yeah so down over the top into the um backside of the canyon and uh uh, we find a bit of a reprieve from the wind it's still raining like crazy sideways literally and uh get in the tent get it set up which that was an experience in itself where literally one guy could just he just had to hold the tent while the other guy pegged it because it was the wind it was just anyway in the tent and uh uh, and then it started snowing about, you know, an hour later, we, we couldn't hunt. There was no opportunity. Even if we knew there was, well, we did literally we get into that valley and we see mountain goats. We're like, okay, well, perfect. But we, you know, there's this wind. it's, it's dangerous. It's not even a safety, it's a safety concern at this point. Right.
0: It doesn't sound like a hunting trip. This sounds like a survival exercise.
1: Exactly. Right. So, you know, but we're like, okay, well, you know, we just, we're, we're pretty, we pretty, we've been in the back country enough and we're pretty confident and we're both relatively capable, not highly, my partner is highly experienced, I would say more so than me, but you know, we, we know there's limitations and smart and dangerous things he can do. So anyway, we get in our tent and we're just sitting there all day, um, you know, and we check outside and now it's starting to snow. So at one point we wake up, um, or I I wake up, I hear Kyle, Kyle. And I'm like thinking, is there a bear? Like the sense of urgency. And he goes, I think the tents collapsed. And we've got a good quality tent. It's a Hilleberg. It's designed right. for the mountain, um, four season. It, it's a durable tent and, and I'm laying there and I turn my head cause I'd been laying on my side, I guess I turned my head and the tent is literally in my face <laughs> and I'm like, whoa. So, you know, we push it up and the snow falls off and I look outside and there's six inches of, of wet, wet, wet snow. So, you know, we kind of talk about it we're like you know, this, we've only got five days and the problem is I had to go back to work. So I, I had some limitations there. So we're talking about, we're like, and we really only have two days left. Like that was day one. We got the next two days and we're like, well, if we get up in the morning, it's still doing this. We could be in a position where we're stuck here. Like we, if it snows hard enough, we might not be able to get the truck out at the trailhead. We might not be able to hike out and like you're going to get out, right? Like you just might have to wait for some warm weather or, Mm. you know, you you can always wait the weather out. That's always an option, but you might not be able to wait it out for, you might have to wait it out for a week or two weeks. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, so we're, we get up in the morning and it, it's escalated. It's even, there's even more snow, like the tents completely surrounded and it, there's snow everywhere. You can't see the trail. There's no, we've lost the trail now. And, uh, we're just like, you know, we, and we, so, and we also have an in-reach. Um, I'm not sure if you've used that before, Travis. Oh, they're great. Fantastic. Right. So. Yes. You know we started pulling forecasts at that point and they're like heavy snow heavy snow heavy snow for the next like three days and we're like like uh, and and my buddy said you know i don't think we can stay here like we're not gonna we can't hunt there's no way you can't see more than a hundred couple hundred yards so we wake up in the morning uh throw everything in the bag back on the pack up over the pass and this wind has not subsided and i've never seen the wind and snow like that so anyway up this pass you know, we're completely soaked before we get, we're going over the pass where we were knocked down the first time and we come over the top and we're on, we're going through this pass and now the visibility is zero, zero and my buddy's in much better shape than me. He's a hardcore backcountry guy and I'm, I'm falling behind him. Well, I'm like five minutes, 10 minutes behind him and I can't even see his tracks in the snow. So now I'm starting to get mm-hmm. really uncomfortable because I'm like, what, like, what if I lose him and what if we get separated, right? So um, so finally he waits up, uh, catches up with me and there's a points where we're crawling in the snow because the snow's too deep. Like I've never seen it like that. It was clear. There was no snow the previous day, like really, you know, 18 and hours earlier. And now we're up to our waist at times in snow and we're having wow. to crawl on top to, but there was one point where I was just exhausted and that's where I, I fell down on my knees. I tripped and, but it's just, there's snow everywhere. It's not treacherous in that sense. And I'm on my knees and I'm like, I'm soaked, I'm tired. And I'm a little nervous about where my partner is, where he's, where he's gone to. And we don't really know how to get off this mountain either because we've, we don't have a trail anymore. We've lost that aspect of it. And I was just sitting there and I was on my knees and I was just like, I'm done. And that was that kind of where I hit my wall physically and mentally exhausted and Mm -hmm. nervous. Like I was nervous. And, uh, and then it was kind of like, you know, having been there and hit that wall several times throughout my hunting career and went, okay, get your sorry butt up and get going and, and then, you know, you regain the energy and, and we got off the mountain, so.
0: Wow, yeah. that's a hell of a story.
1: <laughs> it's, uh, it's fun, you know, and, and that's the thing I love about these backcountry experiences is that's the ones that, where I feel like I'm being pushed to my limit. Uh, and I don't, I very rarely experience that at work. Um, and when I, in my personal life, that's the one time where you're just like, you just feel like shutting down and then you find a way to get through it. And, and you come out the other side and just the, the whole experience and just having done it and having pushed yourself and gone through it, it's so rewarding.
0: A good friend of mine, he's uh, quite a successful businessman and he says, nothing worthwhile ever comes easy. And he, it's Mm -hmm. sort of like his mantra, he keeps saying that and when things get really tough, whether it be at work or, or whatever, right. I always think about that. Nothing worthwhile ever comes easy. That and well, it really sucks right now the mind has a funny way of varnishing it over afterwards and it becomes one of these experiences that, that you hold on to and cherish for, for a very long time. So yeah. you just don't get those little gems without going through the suck.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that, and for me, that's what it is with this, uh, experience with the, and that's what I, I mentioned at the start of the show there where Jack O'Connor says it's, there's no halfway. It's not like yeah, that was okay. I might do it again. and see. There, No, it, it's one or the other. It really truly is. People, most people do it and they love it, you know, cause they, they've been drawn to it for some reason. And, but you get the odd person and I, I've had friends I've taken in the mountains and they said, I will never do that again. And, it, you know, you find out really early, it was a bad decision to bring them even on the trip mm. and kind of ruined the trip. But, you know, you get through it, you work through it and, and you hope they, you know, maybe come to that epiphany that you've came to at some point where you go, Yeah, this is worth it. Let's push on. But there's people that just say, no, I'll never do this again. I will never set foot in the mountains.
0: And I guess you raise a good point too, when you're, when you're looking for hunting partners, and I guess with your experience of bringing other people out, are you able to kind of get a sense that who's going to make a good partner in the hills, in the mountains and and who you might, they might show curiosity or interest, but you'd never want to bring out there. Are there any sort of things that kind of twig in the back of your mind that you could share?
1: Well, you know, I I, I'll, I have to be careful in case uh, one of my ex-partners <laughs> listens to this. Um, and I, I won't throw him under the bus too bad, but there were so early signs where a guy maybe wasn't predisposed for it. He, um, you know, and, and just, you know, look in people's personal lives and just how do they handle stress? How do they handle adversity? Mm. And if somebody's struggling with that in your personal life and then you put them in that physical environment, you know, that's maybe a telltale sign. And it was funny so there was four of us that went me and my regular hunting partner we took two guys with us that were good friends of ours and um you know that first trip is always a just a that's the epiphany where it's like it's immediately obvious where i shouldn't be here or i should be here i want to be here and i'm going to work it or and both of them were struggling and we were too don't get me wrong but we'd been through that we'd been through the epiphany on previous right. trips These. These two guys hadn't and uh, both of them said, okay, we're done. And we, we, you know, talked them through and they pushed and we got to where they wanted to. And ironically, the one guy, he, he, it wasn't a pleasant trip for him, but afterwards he said, okay, I am doing this again. And he has, and he's come on several trips with us and he's, he's a very, he does a great job. He's, and then the other guy was like, I'll never do this again. And, and, um, and he's never been back.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I guess you, uh, yeah, you do raise a good point. How somebody manages stress in their own life or manages themselves personally, it's not going to just magically get better when you are out in the mountains. <laughs> it's just going to amplify any little deficiency that might be there. And absolutely, the other thing I've found is when your head's in the right place and things are happy, happy, you can you can tackle the hills no problem. And when you are personally have a lot on your mind, a lot of things you are working with. I find that physically, it's it's draining, and it really amplifies itself out on out on the hills. That's a good point. Yeah, I don't know if you've even noticed that as well.
1: You know, I I can't say that I have, but now that you mention it, it makes a lot of sense for sure. Like if you're in that good place and you wanna, yeah, there's no question it it does translate for sure. That's a good point. I just never really looked at it that close.
0: So you sit on the board of directors for the Wild Sheep Foundation and past president of the Wild Sheep Society. What can you tell us about these organizations?
1: These two organizations, uh, are very close to my heart. Um, which would make sense cause I've served on both as directors and continue to do so I'm a director on both boards as well still. You know, the, we refer to the wild sheep community as a family. It's our wild sheep family. You know, I've been members of, uh, different rod and gun clubs or, you know, um, over the years and all great organizations and you're in this fraternity of like-minded people that care about the same type of stuff, you know, care about opportunity and wildlife and conservation and, and do such great work. And there's hundreds and like thousands of clubs across Canada sure. you know, like that. And I've been lucky to be a member of a number of them and they're, they're all great. I, I don't have anything to say negative towards any of them. When I came, what happened was I, the first year I went sheep hunting. My buddy bought me a membership to the Wild Sheep Society of BC, and we went to their um, Kamloops convention. It's a fundraiser that they have every year. We have every year, and um, I, I came in this room, and you know, it was this these hunters that you know you shared this bond with, but then it was focused on uh, mountain game and wild sheep and something that and this this experience that we talked about about being in the mountains and and the allure of the the rocky peaks and the you know the the ram on the the mountain and and seeing a grizzly bear at first light or last light across the landscape um, all these shared experiences and um, w- we refer to it as I said our wild sheep family and I really feel like that that these people are just they're like brothers and sisters to me and uh, the wild sheep society of BC is a regional organization we're a BC based organization our mandate is um, to look after wild sheep and their habitat in bc it's it's our mandate we're mandated by it so that's what we focus on Uh, the wild sheep foundation is a national organization worldwide really and they look after the wild sheep resource and their habitat around the world so um, it's kind of a a larger scale but you know you think you get to a big organization with close to ten thousand members and you kind of lose that personalization but it's not you know you go to sheep show this year, it's the experience, um, that they're calling it. Uh, We've had to retool for, um, uh, the cancellation of all the events going on. Right. right? And, uh, you just, it's just, uh, you're in a fraternity of like-minded individuals and you're just, um, you have all these hunters, but then it's hyper-focused on this, you know, this one animal and, uh, and these experiences and it's, it's so rewarding and I've just got nothing bad to say about the great work that both these, the foundation and the society do for conservation and and wildlife and uh, on the landscape.
0: So what are some of the projects you're involved with? I think in BC, you guys have a few projects on the go, don't you?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, um, I'll just talk to the foundation and a lot of people go, well, why would I, I, and because I want to hype, I want to focus in on BC, but people say, well, why would you support the foundation? You know, they're a national organization. They're a, a big, you know, 10,000 people. One thing that people don't understand is the Wild Sheep Foundation has put over um, $5 million into BC over the last uh, 20 years for wild sheep conservation. Wow. And, um, I, I challenge anyone out there, um, and to, to tell me, uh, any other organization, any other conservation organization that's done something similar. And I, I there isn't, there just isn't. Um, on top of it, the foundation for every, um, uh, dollar, I think they put for every member's dollar that comes in, they put $4 on the ground. So, you know, you buy a membership, um, it's a four to one ratio is what they're doing in terms of conservation. And and they do that through fundraising, through, you know, the sale of tags for these, these hunts and, and that sort of stuff. So they do such a good job of putting the conservation dollars on the ground and they do it all around the world, but they do it, they've put more money into British Columbia than any other jurisdiction in the world. So that's something I think British Columbians need to understand. The Wild Sheep Foundation puts more money here than anywhere else in the world. So that's why I support that organization. They do great work for all habitat and all wildlife and all wild sheep, but specifically wild sheep in BC, you just can't, you cannot fault them for their support there. Now, Wild Sheep Society BC, obviously we focus all our resources on British Columbia. We've got a ton of different projects and, and the list could go on Travis, but you know, one of the challenges wild sheep face in British Columbia is, uh, a disease issue and it's, uh, related to, um, domestic sheep and wild sheep. And they, uh, wild sheep can contract disease from domestic sheep. And the big key to success there is keeping them separated mm-hmm. right? if we keep wild sheep and, um, but we've had these massive die-offs in different jurisdictions that are caused by these diseases. So one of the big projects and one of our the biggest expenditures has been trying to manage this disease issue on the Fraser River. The Fraser River ecosystem seen a drop of a significant number in the 1990s, 40 to 50% die off, and it's never recovered at the hands wow. of disease. So we've, we've invested a lot of money. I think, uh, um, this Fraser river project, we, we put hundreds of thousands of dollars into that. Our first year we put $57,000 and I think last year, um, it, we came to 110,000 and we just approved another 24,000 on top of that. So we're into it over hundred almost 150 grand. And that's just the wild sheep society. BC. there's a number of or- other organizations that have put money into it. The government's put money into it. So it's an issue, and um, you know if we crack that code on the disease, and we can sort that out, and either find, you know, a cure, which we haven't, so that's the issue, mm. or find some way to mitigate these interactions between de- domestic and wild sheep, that would be a win for wildlife and a win for wild sheep for sure, because we could see them return. That these ecosystems have the ability to carry way more in terms of wild sheep, but the disease issue prevented that, and that's what probably our biggest issue in British Columbia, but that's number one, but then there's habitat restoration issues and, um, uh, that's a big one as well. So we've been doing a ton of work with trying to put burns forward and, and habitat enhancement projects as well. Kind of the core of what we used to do was transplants. And okay. since I've been on the board of directors, we've never had that opportunity because we've got this disease issue. Mm. You don't want to take an unhealthy animal and just transplant them. You need a healthy ecosystem and a healthy habitat and a healthy set of, uh, healthy environment. And then you need healthy sheep to move them to, but if you got any disease issues, you're just moving one problem to a new area. So right. we haven't done any transplants since I've been involved, which is a little disappointing. You know, that that's the fun stuff, right? right? you know, doing transplants or burns and, and stuff like that, but, uh, that the transplant issue has been, has been on hold for a number of years because of this disease issue.
0: Well, Kyle, is there anything else that we should be talking about before we wrap things up here? Is there anything we missed?
1: Um, no, I think we, I think we hit a lot of things. I think, uh, you know, for your listeners is, um, take a look at, at uh, the conservation work that's being done by the society, the Wild Sheep Society BC and in our province and. Uh, You know, we put over $250,000 of our own money on the ground last year, and then we had at least that in matching funds from other partners, whether it be other wild sheep organizations or, you know, just fish and game clubs. A lot of partners have partnered with us on these projects. So, you know, if conservation matters, I think take a look at the work we're doing. I think that the society. Is in terms of our conservation footprint, you know, I feel like our board and our members uh, have made us one of the leaders in the province, and, and I hate to brag a bit, but I I'm really proud of the group and the support we've got from our membership to do that because it's not not easy, right? We there's a lot of uh, time, money, and effort on everybody's part, and certainly the membership's part to make it happen. So you know, we got a cool membership drive. I hate to do this self. Uh, here plug, we but, go. Uh, <laughs> no, do it, do <laughs> we it. Do you have a yeah? We have a membership drive going on right now. Um, and you know, we're just trying to grow our base of conservationists so we can do our mission and put more, uh, work into the ground to make sure wild sheep and other mountain animals are thriving across the landscape in British Columbia. So love to see, um, people check it out and, and come join us and help to support the cause.
0: So that'd be wildsheepsociety.com.
1: Precisely. Yeah, for sure. And uh, membership page, there's a membership drive. We're giving a thousand bucks away from Sitka, Stone Glacier or Yeti. So anyone that wants to go mountain hunting, they can wow. get a Sitka suit or they can get, and we've got fantastic support. We've got so many great corporate sponsors. Um, and when I just said three of them, they just great support from them. They're always supporting our, our mission and, and what we're doing. Um, so yeah, we're giving a thousand bucks away. We're going to draw that to one of those three different sponsors. Um, uh, corporate entities, you can, you can buy their gear and we're drawing that on March 13th. So.
0: Okay. Well, I'll throw some links up in the, in the podcast here. So if people want to click on it on their phone or on YouTube, they can, uh, they can see that there. Kyle, absolutely fantastic talking with you. Thank you very much for taking the time to come on the Silvercore podcast.
1: I appreciate it, Travis. And thank you. You guys are doing a great work in the industry and just, uh, just an honor to be here with you and, uh, I've had the opportunity to work with Tiffany and speak with her and uh, just keep up the great work. Super thankful for what you guys do to support our industry and just training those new hunters out there, right? Keeping them safe and making them successful. And And then on top of it, the communication work you're doing here on the podcast. Great job. Thank you.